Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com, and we are the children of the 80s. Children of the 80s are back with another review, one of our childhood favorites. I'm Patrick, and with me, as always, are three people who spent a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters, especially in their childhood. First, he's the host of the number two review and the author of Duty, Honor, Empire, a 25th century love story. You can follow him on Twitter at Haley Creative. Uh, the Fredo to my Michael, Chris Haley. You're killing me, Smalls. Also with us, she is one of the co-hosts of Sunday Seconds with the Duke, the John Wayne Retrospective Podcast, which can be heard every second Sunday of the month here on the MHN Podcast Network. A, a woman who has the acting ability of a young Sofia Coppola. Laura Flores. Why, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't think that was a compliment, Laurie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Finally, he's a replacement for Matt Palmer because Matt couldn't be here. Just like Tom Hagen, he's our George Hamilton. All the way from Australia, Shane Adam Bassett. <laughs> As the reserve off the bench today, I'm under pre- pressure to perform like Matt does. Well, we look uh, forward to your uh, internet connection dropping mid- midway through then. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best to keep it going. All right, welcome everyone. And before we get started, we'd like to thank all of the returning listeners to our show and welcome all new listeners to Lunchtime Movie Review. Thanks for downloading us and giving us a try. We appreciate your time and attention and hope you keep on listening and following us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. On either one of those two social media outlets, you can keep up on our occasional written film reviews, news on upcoming theatrical releases, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network, including this show, Lunchtime Movie Review, or one of the growing number of sister shows like Movie House Memories, the number two review, Mail Bonding, Sunday Seconds with the Duke, or Movie House Concessions. And whether you're a frequent listener or a brand new fan of our little show, we hope that you take the time after you're done listening and provide us with a little feedback. You can do that one of two ways. If you've downloaded us off either iTunes or Stitcher, you can go onto one of those two platforms and rate our podcast and leave a little comment about the show. Additionally, you can also visit our website at moviehousememories.com or lunchtimemoviereview.com and leave a comment about either our podcast, our opinions, or the film that we are reviewing. Further, on our website, you can leave your star review rating of the film that we have discussed so that we can get a consensus rating from the MHN Podcast Network community. As always, we love to hear positive feedback, but we appreciate anything anyone has to say about any one of our little shows. And with that nasty business out of the way, let's get on to this week's review of one of our childhood favorites, The Godfather Part 3 from 1990. And Chris, do you have a word from our sponsor? Today's podcast is brought to you by GoFundMe. When you need a certain character in your film but refuse to pay for him, GoFundMe. Your fans will thank you. All right, and I've got the summary this week. The year is 1979. Disco is king and mafia boss. 
Michael Corleone is queen. The Don has turned over a new leaf at the tender age of 60, sold off the casinos, and handed over the family business to a younger mobster, Joey Zaza. Corleone tries to go legit as an honest businessman, much like Donald Trump did in 2016, but with slightly less Oompa Loompa makeup. However, instead of a run for the role of commander-in-chief, Michael has been chosen to be named Commander of the Order of St. Sebastian by the Roman Catholic Church. Flip a coin to find out which one deals with more corruption. Also like Donald Trump, Michael is a tortured, tortured man. He still carries tremendous guilt over ordering the death of his own brother, Fredo. Additionally, Michael is divorced from his second wife, Kay, whose perfect shit shines gold. He's also somewhat estranged from his two now-adult children, Anthony and Mary, and should be embarrassed by how Kay raised them. Anthony wants to leave law school and become a singer of all things, not in a boy band or anything that makes money, mind you, but as a legitimate opera singer. Sofia Coppola, the Don of the Retards, plays Mary, who simply wants to have sex with her first cousin, Vincent Mancini, and then piss off as many godfather fanboys as humanly possible. You got us there, Sophia. Vincent is the bastard son of Sonny Corleone, and his side piece that he was banging up against the bedroom door during Connie's wedding in the first Godfather movie. Vincent is a chip off the old block with a temper that matches. Vincent works for and gets sideways with Joey Zaza. They have a problem with each other that Michael has to involve himself in. Michael takes Vincent under his wing in order to protect his young, illegitimate nephew from Zaza and himself. Tom Hagen is... Wait a minute. Tom Hagen's not in this film. And fuck you if you think you didn't know better than Francis Ford Coppola, right, Sophia? One of the best characters written out of the series because they didn't want to pay him extra money. In addition to getting worthless awards from the Pope, Michael attempts to legitimize the Corleone family name by attempting to take control of an international real estate company, International Immobiliari. Michael leans on Archbishop Gilday, the head of the Vatican Bank. He offers the desperate banker $600 million to cover up the massive deficit that the banker has secretly accumulated. In exchange, Michael will be given control of the church's shares in the company. Immobiliary's board agrees to the offer, but the deal still has to be ratified by the Pope, who has suddenly turned ill. Too much tea, I suppose. While this is going on, Michael has to deal with his mafia brother's drama. Their panties are in a bunch because Michael is leaving them without giving them some of the vast monies that Michael is about to see in his Vatican deal. Don Altobello, a Tuco-like mafia boss and Connie's godfather, visits Michael and whines to him that his old partners at the Mafia Commission want in on the deal. Michael calls a meeting of the commission and tells them as politely as he can to go pound sand. During the meeting, a helicopter hovers overhead as soon as Zaza and Altobello are out of the room. It opens fire on the remaining Dons, who are now locked in the room. Michael, his bodyguard Al Neri, and Vincent narrowly escape. The remaining Dons who survive the massacre make a deal with Zaza, but Michael does not believe that Zaza has the brains or the balls to carry out such an elaborate hit. However, Michael suffers a diabetic stroke before he can uncover the identity of the big bad in this film. While Michael takes a candy siesta, Vincent starts banging his cousin Mary. And much like her effect on the audience, Mary's voice then drives Vincent to kill. And he takes it out on Zaza during a little Italy street parade. When Michael regains consciousness, he berates Vincent for taking out both his daughter and Zaza. Michael realizes that Altobello is the man behind the hit. The film then jumps ahead a few months, and the entire Corleone family is traveling to Sicily for Anthony's operatic debut in Palermo. While there, Michael convinces Vincent to approach Altobello and pretend to betray Michael in order to find out how high the plot goes. 
Altobello introduces Vincent to Don Lucchese, a powerful Italian political figure and Immobiliari's chairman. Michael is informed that the entire Immobiliari deal is an elaborate swindle conspired by Lucchese, Archbishop Gilday, and the Vatican accountant Frederick Kinzig to pick up chicks, except for the Archbishop. He wants choir boys. Anyway, Michael visits Cardinal Lamberto, favored to become the next pope, to discuss the deal. The naive Lamberto gives Michael some candy, which persuades him to make his first confession in 30 years. Michael tearfully confesses that he ordered Fredo's murder, and Lamberto says Michael deserves to suffer, but can be redeemed. While Michael is confessing his sins, Altobello hires Mosca, a veteran hitman, to assassinate Michael. Mosca and his son, disguised as priests, kill Don Tomasino as he returns to his villa. Michael receives word of Tomasino's death and at the funeral vows never to sin again. No, seriously, for reals this time, he's, he's going to go legit, never to sin again. He'll pinky swear you to that one. It's not like he thought he was out before, he just got pulled back in. Vincent tells Michael that Altobello is plotting to have Mosca assassinate Michael. Michael sees that his nephew is a changed man, because that is what happens when you start banging your first cousin. And he names Vincent the new Don of the Corleone family. He even gets to have the Corleone name. However, Vincent's rise to power has one price. The new Don will need to give up his relationship with Mary. The gifts just keep coming for Vincent, who without hesitation drops the little Italian bird and starts having his hand kissed. After the Pope dies, Cardinal Lamberto is elected as Pope John Paul I, and the Immobiliari deal is to be ratified. Unfortunately for Michael, the plotters against the ratification are now attempting to cover their tracks and need Michael to be killed. While the family is watching Anthony's performance in Palermo, the Corleone family sends out their hitman to settle all family business at Vincent's command. Kidzik is smothered and hung from a bridge, making his death seem like a suicide over his bad banking. Altobello eats a poison cannoli given to him by Connie at the opera. Alneri travels to the Vatican and shoots Archbishop Gilday. Finally, Callo, Tomasino's former bodyguard, goes to Lucchese at the Don's office and stabs him in the neck with his own glasses before being gunned down himself. All of this is set to the tune of Anthony's operatic voice. After he approves the Immobiliari deal, the Pope is served poison tea on the recently deceased Archbishop Gilday's orders. He dies soon afterwards. Mosca attempts to kill Michael outside the opera house, but unintentionally kills Mary. Two hours and 40 minutes into the film, and we finally have something to cheer about. Before you can even begin to cheer that good news, though, Vincent shoots the fly dead. Michael silently screams in grief on the steps of the opera in the same voice I made throughout the entire film every time Mary speaks. The film ends with a much older Michael sitting alone in the garden of Don Tomasino's villa. The elderly Don suddenly slumps over his chair, falling to the ground, and so ends one of the most memorable characters to ever grace the silver screen. Godfather Part 3, released on December 25th of 1990. The same month, nobody came out else came out the Christmas release that year. Same month as Almost an Angel with who, Shane? Paul Hogan. Yeah, of course. I put that one in there for you, thinking about you. Uh, the Bonfire of the Vanities, The Russia House, Awakenings, Hamlet with Mel Gibson, and Green Card. Grossed, and I don't think this is necessarily a good sign, 66 million, 666 thousand and sixty two dollars a lot of sixes in there uh, maybe that's a sign uh only on a budget of 54 million it's the second highest grossing of the series anybody know what is the highest grossing of the series the first the first one 133 million 
Um, by today's uh, budget, uh, by today's uh, inflation, uh, the six the sixty six million would be about one hundred thirty six million by today's money. Was the seventeenth highest grossing film of nineteen ninety behind another forty eight hours, Three Men and a Little Lady, and Bird on a Wire, and in front of uh, Flatliners, Misery, and Edward Scissorhands. Was nominated for seven Academy Awards, nominated for Best Picture, lost to Dances with Wolves. Best Supporting Actor for Andy Garcia, lost to Joe Pesci for Goodfellas. Nominated for Best Director, uh, Coppola lost to Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves. Nominated for Best Cinematography, lost to Dances with Wolves. Nominated for Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, lost to Dick Tracy, another Al Pacino film. Nominated for Best Film Editing, lost to Dances with Wolves. I'm presuming because it doesn't say in the book who won, but I'm pretty sure that's the one that won. So that is The Godfather. Um, all right. Uh, nothing wrong with this film at all, right, Chris? Nothing, no glaring discrepancies or bad acting by... Uh, by a certain actors. daughter? <laughs> um, you know, I think that if Tom Hagen was in this film, I could have tolerated Sofia Coppola's acting a little bit more. To me, Tom Hagen not being in this is probably the biggest glaring error that they did. I think they should have sucked it up, paid him a little more money, and come to a compromise. That's what right. I miss the most. So Chris takes us into a topic I didn't think we'd be discussing. <laughs> the fact that Robert Duvall is not in the film. Lori? I don't know. It didn't bother me that much. I guess he wasn't my favorite character. I don't know. All right. Well, let's talk to somebody who knows something. Shane? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I would like to have seen him there for sure, but... What annoys me is that the fact, I think, from all reports, he didn't play the role was because of money. I mean, the two movies that came before this are legendary epic films. And you'd think an actor, no matter what their status, would want to appear in a third film if his character's still alive for as much money, you know, or less money as he can get. But I, I, Robert Duvall, I mean, at the time, I think 1990 was Days of Thunder. So he was in Days of Thunder, but he wasn't in this. It, it, it crushes me a little bit that he didn't appear. I didn't overly miss him, but I would have liked to have seen him there for sure. I, I'm going to echo Chris's thoughts that I think his presence is severely lacking in this film. Although I don't, it, it's hard to say how much it would have because obviously they downsized the role once he wasn't involved. If he would have been involved, I'm sure that they would have, he would have had a sizable role and I would have been curious to see how they restructured it because obviously George Hamilton's character who's who's now playing the kind of the family lawyer is not really that crucial of an element um, to the film. And in fact, seems very out of place him and um, father Sarducci or whatever, who is the other guy who, you know, I'm used to seeing him on SNL, um, but seeing him play straight role is a little bit different and kind of weird, but um, not as weird as casting Sofia Coppola, which is what we need to talk about the most Shane. Are we going to get into Sophia this early? Well, well, I'm how just... could you not? Uh, you know, it's every time nails on a chalkboard, nails on a chalkboard. She's just such a horrible actress, a gifted director, but a horrible actress. Yeah, very. She turned into a very gifted director. Uh, look, I don't know. Whenever you bring up Godfather Part Three, it's always you're right. It's Sophia's name comes up before anything else, and it's just a notorious subject. And I understand. I understand why I get it. But is she really that bad? And I think we're going to argue a little bit about this 
Patrick, maybe Chris too, but and she's an easy target. Uh, it's it's a yeah, performance. She's got a, nose. she's got a big nose. Easy it's, target. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her side profile is kind of extended, but like her performance is difficult to defend in hindsight. But she, to me, like this is me. I, I haven't seen it for many years, and I've rewatched it again only a couple of days ago to be with you today. And her, she distills a little bit of heartache in certain moments. She's not as bad, ironically, as people are making out, in my opinion. She's not great. She's got a bit of a valley girl accent at times. And, you know, I don't think it's a laughably bad Razzie Award dominating performance in my eyes. Okay. I remember the first time I saw this movie, I had listened to you and Carol talking about it and saying, I remember Carol saying how horrible she was and that everybody was supposed to be in love with her and she just didn't buy it. So when I saw it the first time, I thought, wow, she's really horrible. But this time when I watched it, I'm with Shane. I didn't think she was that bad. I mean, is it the best performance I've ever seen? No. Is it in the top 1,000 performances? No. But I didn't think she was that bad. I think she kind of is the part. You know, she's kind of an Italian princess, and she kind of just played herself. I didn't think she really had to. Her accent did bother me a little bit. Um, the only thing that really bothered me was when she was kind of flirting with Andy Garcia at her father's um, celebration for his um, papal award, or whatever he got. I, I didn't I didn't buy the way she was flirting. She seemed, I don't know, more like a middle schooler flirting. But other than that, I really, I really thought her performance was okay. Every time I see it, I think of that 13-year-old girl in Romeo and Juliet screaming like a little kid. And um, this time it was no different. I do think it's her voice that bothers me the most. It, it just seems that there's so many people in this film that are character actors and really good at what they do. And then you throw this girl in there who, to me she just has no charisma on-screen charisma or any likable presence for me so i she does take away a lot from every scene um she brings people down with her performance i think so i think that it's justified uh her her performance all the criticism that she gets i will say that i ha- i find it very hard to see why nona writer in this part i i wouldn't say i couldn't say, tell you that why nona writer would do that much better because to me, Winona Ryder is Heather's and Beetlejuice. So maybe they just had trouble casting this properly, but Sophia was not the one for it. And, you know, and I'm going to echo that is, uh, you know, I, I don't know what Nona Ryder, what, what Winona Ryder would have done with this is that she was at this particular point in time was at the cusp of a, a transition in her career going on to more serious roles. She just come out of mermaids, welcome home, Roxy Carmichael, um, I want to say Heather's. There were four movies that she did back to back, and when she showed up on the set, she collapsed in exhaustion, and they had to replace her immediately. And Sofia Coppola was the well, I don't want to say it was the best they could do, but it was probably one of the few options they had because they didn't have a lot of time to recast the role, and so she filled in on it. I I was probably unlike Lori, I was probably more forgiving back then and I didn't like her performance and I was heavily critical of it. But watching it now is I think Godfather three is a really good movie, but except for her or except for her performance. And 
her performance is just so bad. The sequences that she's involved with are just so painful to watch because I agree with Lori. I don't like the sequence at, I mean, and there's three primary ones. There's the sequence at, um, the, uh, the celebration when he's getting the uh, commander, uh, pin from the, the Catholic church at the beginning, there's the supposedly romantic scene between her and Andy Garcia at his restaurant when they're rolling pasta, um, and then there's a sequence where she uh, she's talking to Anthony and Michael when they're talking about the violence of um, Sicily and everything like that. Those are the three big acting sequences. Of course, her horrible line at the very end of dad, you know, right before she dies um, was not good either. But that's unforgivable. It's she the, was in shock. Well, it's, it's one word. I, I'll, I'll, I'll give her a pass on that is like, how do you communicate that? You know, I'm dying and I'm not understanding what's going on in one word. And, you know, there are skilled actors that would have difficulty delivering that portion of the film. But the other three sequences are just it just it's and she's always paired with somebody who's so good at their at their ability, like, you know, Andy Garcia or Al Pacino and not scene chewing Al Pacino. Um, This is like Al Pacino from the good days. You know, he. He scaled it back in this film, and there, there's there's a couple of moments in it, but most of the film he's pretty low key. He's Michael Corleone, and he's he's that character, the character that I've loved through two of what arguably are the two of the best films ever made. And we we can argue later of why was this film even necessary? Did you did you need to go there to complete this saga? And was a satisfactory satisfactory ending? We'll talk about that later, but. It, Sophia Coppola is just, it's just so painful. I mean, just painful to watch. And, and I, I do think that she possibly gets too much of the negative feedback for it because there are other faults in this film, mainly other, you know, what the castings they could have done, but it, it just, it shouldn't have, it should not have happened. They should have held, had a pause and not, and recast the role. And so they would have had a much better film. You said there was like three pivotal scenes. I, I thought there might have been a fourth when Andy Garcia tells her to love somebody else, and then she sort of breaks down and cries. I thought that was pretty strong. I mean, it was just I a agree. typical teen being told, you know, a boyfriend doesn't love her anymore, you know, that, and that's what teens do. And she just started crying on the spot. And I thought that was a pretty decent scene for her. You know how it was a very believable scene. Yeah, you know how Coppola yeah. got the reaction. They showed her her dailies, and that's she just <laughs> cried. Yeah. So, well, and you're saying um, like, and it was originally reported that Winona Ryder was ailing or unwell from an undisclosed illness and collapsed on set, like you said, Patrick. But um, she still went on and made Edward Scissorhands, and she was great in that. And I don't think Sofia Coppola was like an instant. They didn't put her in straight away. Anna Bella Sciorra and Laura San Giacomo were two actresses, I believe, that were uh, fitted with costumes even and considered strongly for the role before Sophia stepped in. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to think of Annabella Sciorra. I can't. Hand the Rocks the Cradle? I know, I know who she is. I was just trying to go. Trying to Hand the Rocks the Cradle came out later, a few years later. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think age-wise if she would have fit the role in that. Um, Laura San Giacomo is, I mean, she'd already been in Pretty Woman. Um, Sex Lies and Video Tapes. Yeah, I don't know if she, and, and plus her, 
how I've and what I always and she seems to play the same character in every film. So I I have she's got kind of that Texas draw to her that I would have I don't know if I would have believed her as New York Italian. So. Fair enough. But, you know, I believe those two came close anyway to be actually fitted with costumes, but didn't get it. Not probably like you say, they were a bit older um, for the, what the role required. Yeah, because I do think her age-wise is appropriate. I think she's supposed to be kind of that young, naive girl kind of becoming a woman, and this is her first love, her first crush. But I just don't. That whole love story and one of two love stories that doesn't seem to make sense to me in this film or why it's even touched upon is I understand why it's necessary. It just it never you never sold me on it. I OK, I maybe I can understand why she likes Vincent, but I cannot understand why Vincent likes her. Um, there's nothing in this that communicates, oh, you'd fall in love with this girl. I can't disagree with you on that. I mean, I I don't understand why he at the beginning of the film, he, there was a line that she said where he uh, I, I don't exactly know how she puts it, but he gets around. You know, he's had a lot of girlfriends. I'm like, well, why would you settle for for this girl who's the daughter of uh, of a family that you're completely devoted to, as we see throughout this film? So. I, I don't really buy that relationship. I almost wonder if the reason he was attracted to her was because of who she was. It could be, which makes his that, character that, a lot more, a lot darker. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. That definitely could be a strong point that in the back of Andy Garcia's head was to be become what he became and the Don. And maybe that was sort of part of the, the entry for him. Although over time you, you would think it, she was just like flirting with him and uh, puppy love to begin with. But, you know, I think there was a bit of a connection there that their first kiss in that restaurant was pretty shocking as far as bad kisses go on screen. <laughs> that wasn't very believable, but her character, I think um, was puppy love to begin with and same maybe with him, just a bit of a uh, flirtation, but ended up being a little bit stronger than that. But he gives her up pretty quickly. I mean, yeah, and he doesn't seem to have a lot of emotion about it. You go love somebody else and kind of walks away. And he, I mean, he seems upset when she dies and that's pretty much the only thing that argument anybody could make to say he he had general affection for her, but it's kind of when he's trying to sell his soul to Altabello on behalf of Michael and Altabello kind of implies that, Hey, you want this, you want to be this girl because she's got all the money and everything like that. And he kind of implies, Hey, you're, you're pretty wise. Maybe he's being genuine in that, you know, maybe, maybe there's a darkness and a sinisterness to his character that, um, that is kind of glossed over. True. And Andy Garcia totally deserved that Oscar nomination. It's one of his best ever performances then and now. Yes, I agree with that. I, he was totally deserving of, uh, although I think Joe Pesci still had a better role that year, but that was the Joe Pesci role. So, and Joe All Pesci right. hasn't strayed too far from that since. So. <laughs> nope, still playing it all the way for another one, um, although he didn't act very much. All right, uh, I mentioned there was a second romance, the kind of the rekindling of Michael and Kay uh, that I thought was a somewhat an unnecessary storyline in this film and kind of drug it out. And Chris, you're big on unnecessary storylines and how much you hate them and making films longer. What did you think <laughs> about that? I didn't know why she was in this film. I mean... Honestly, I didn't care for her character too much in this film, so I think that kind of 
clouds my my opinion of th- that love story being unnecessary. Um, to be to be honest with you, I kind of thought there was like this creepy parallel that that Michael and his sister uh, Connie had some sort of like sort of love affair. I'm not saying it was sexual or anything, but I kind of felt that there was more love between them in a, in an intimate way than Michael and Kay. And I at no point do I understand why he what he sees in Kay. I mean, in this film, they even showed flashbacks to his first marriage that uh, when he got married while he was dating Kay in the first one. So I don't really know what you even need with Kay other than she is um, his ex-wife and the mother of his children who are have an important storyline in this film. But her character just kind of seemed to be above everybody, thinking she was better than everybody. And I don't think she was... I, I don't think she was a bad person, but I just didn't really care for it, her. I actually liked their getting back together. I actually think that they always loved each other, but they just couldn't make it work because she couldn't handle the the mafia and the the murder and the, the life of crime. And I actually think that they loved their children so much, and I think that they loved each other so much that they came back together and I bought that and I actually I actually liked that that storyline. I don't I think they her. stayed around together too much after um, Mary's death though. Unfortunately that happens a lot when a couple lose a child. Well, in addition to the fact she was married to another man. So that little well, there's that. So. Which kind of went to the side really. I mean, oh he can't yeah, come. Forgot, He's, you know what I forgot about that. I'm like, come on. Well, firstly, uh, Diane Keaton, if she's in something, I want to see it. So I'm I'm glad I saw her. But the reason Except she's Annie there... Hall. I don't like her in Annie Hall. <laughs> oh, no, I love Annie Hall. I, really, okay. I like her in that and, and just about everything. But, yeah, I love Danny Hall. Uh, the reason she's in this, though, I agree with what you all said, but she's in this because Paramount Pictures wanted the gang back together. Francis Ford Coppola wanted the gang back together. So that's why she's in it. Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola have written this, you know, to extend the story. It's not from an original novel. So they've just put characters in and out willy-nilly kind of, and that's why I think she has some okay scenes in it technically, but overall she doesn't have to be there. However, as I said, it's Diane Keaton, so it was always a pleasure to see her. Well, I do not like Diane Keaton, so <laughs> it's not always a pleasure to see her. Although I will say some of my favorite roles with her films that she's in are the Godfather films. I don't see why she was really necessary for the plot because that little that side plot of the two of them touring Sicily is a, just go, goes nowhere because it's literally over in about seven or eight minutes. And as soon as a Tomasino, as soon as Michael finds out about Tomasino's death, it seems like it snaps her back to reality. And that is the, the end of their little tryst or whatever of them kind of rekindling it. You know, I do understand the idea of Michael trying to atone, Michael trying to find redemption for this character, but it's, you know, is it, is it something that the audience, and I guess we'll get to this too, is it something the audience really wants? Is Does Michael deserve redemption? Does his character deserve redemption? He killed his own brother. You know, he alienated his own family. And what do we expect to have? What kind of ending do you expect to have for this character? Isn't it kind of expected that his his life will be tragedy because that's what his, that's what 
this kind of dark character deserves? And I, I, I guess I'll start with that question, Chris. I think he got what he deserved. Yeah. I mean, he, he, in the end, he lost every woman he cared for. And, uh, did he re- deserve redemption? I guess in a biblical sense, everybody does. So, um, and that I think he thought that to be redeemed, he kind of had to buy his way into it. It seemed at times, but even the priest said that, uh, your sins can be forgiven, but I don't, I don't know if he, he was able to do that. So should he have been redeemed and forgiven? Uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't, but I'm not the judge. I think, I believe that he had changed. I mean, he had, he had, um, turned aside from the crime and, and he had a legitimate business and, and I think he was really striving to be a better person and to, to be a legal person. And so I, I bought that and, and, and I feel he really cared about his legacy and he didn't want his legacy to be the murder and, and crime. He's a legal person. He's basically bribing <laughs> the church, which yeah. is also portrayed in the very negative but light. That's a so. very... That's not unique. I, I don't know. I am not Catholic, but my understanding is if you donate enough money, you can get something like that. And that's not unusual. Well, but it doesn't make it right either, nor does it make it. I'm more. not saying that, but I, but it's not, I'm not saying that it's right, but it's not, it's not something that, that is unique to him. And I, and I don't think it's something that overall is looked down upon in, in, in that church. I totally believe in redemption for anybody, even members of the Corleone family. But Chris hit Chris hit the nail on the head. Uh, it was all about money, disguised as family. It he did want to get out, so he did want his own redemption when he came in and into that big office before the helicopter massacre. That he was giving people checks. He's saying that's it. He's breaking ties with different families and whatnot. Uh, but as you know, he got dragged back in and kept on getting dragged back in. But I, I believe in the end, and and they made you think that too. With that, we'll talk about it, I guess, how exactly it ends. But that final scene where you'll do see his eyes and and so forth. I, I think he's been his his redemption has happened, but it just took a long time getting there. Yeah, well, I, and that's the way he grew up. I mean, it's not like he yeah. chose that life that life just was what his father had chosen and as an immigrant his father didn't have a lot of choices i mean i mean i don't know it's it's just hard he he did choose that life michael didn't want to be a part of his family knew what the family business was didn't want a part of it that's the evolution of this character and the evolution of the character in the first film and chose to be a part of it not only chose to be a part of it initially to protect his father but to avenge his father, the attempt on his father's life to go after the the corrupt pol- uh, policeman as well as uh, the Turk in the first film, and and he killed. He was already immersed in it. I, it was harder for him to get out than I think it was for him to to just embrace that life. Yeah, but he, once he embraced it, he fully embraced it, and you don't as much as in he always says throughout all the films that. Oh, we're going to take the family legitimate, and that's kind of the joke I was making during during the summary is that they're, he's always talking about that, but he's never really trying to do that. He's just further 
developing the corruption just in a different way when, you know, they go into uh, the, the casino business in the, the end of the first film and kind of looking to expand it even further in the second film into Cuba when uh, Castro takes over and everything starts to collapse. Um, he, and he, he's, he's going out and even going as far as, in, you know, essentially blackmailing a witness during kind of the mafia hearings in front of Congress in, in the second film is that he's a very, very dark character and ultimately killing his own brother, which one could argue that there is no redemption for that. None that, that, that mm-hmm. once he did that, that his character is beyond redemption. And even to a certain extent is, I think his character believes that in this particular film is that he's obviously haunted by it. Um, that when he has the diabetic stroke and he's screaming and control controllably and he's screaming about Fredo and, and that sequence is that it's something that still haunts him. And then one of the best sequences with Al Pacino is him having his confession to uh, the priest where he breaks down talking about how I killed my father's son. Um, the, the guilt that he has for that is, and the, the, the priest saying is that, you know, his, his suffering is just and that he can be redeemed, but only if he truly believes in it and wishes to repent, which he doesn't believe Michael wants to do, which is I don't think the audience thinks he wants to do. And I don't think the audience watching this film wants to wants him to do it. They want the killing sequence. They want everybody to die at the end of the film like they do in every Godfather film. It's just not Michael who gives the order this time. It's Vincent that gives the order. But he does nothing to stop Vincent from giving the order when he could have. No, he retired. He's he's going to go watch operas now. That's all yeah. he's going to do. So. Well, at one point, I actually thought Connie, his sister, was going to take over because she was sort of giving the nod to, you know, Vincent quite often and and so forth. And I actually thought it might have been a bit of a stretch, but it would have been great to see Connie take over. Would have been very interesting. She was definitely yeah. more aggressive in this film from the two she stepped up big time and i liked that 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 was one character that really did evolve completely yeah you look at her evolution of her character i mean michael has a very drastic change too but um her her almost the victim in the first film to who the character is by the third film is 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 a quite a, a an impressive character arc that you see over the course of about nine hours of movie watching definitely Talia Shire is a great actress. I think this is kind of the last. No, she does Rocky Five, but I think yeah. Rocky comes out the next year, and that's kind of the last you hear of Talia Shire. For I mean, she didn't really do a lot of acting after that. She's kind of cut out of the Rockies from that point forward, and kind of I think moved to the more of the producing aspect of it. Uh, what did you guys think? I mean, we're not getting to the kind of the heart of it, but obviously we've. The reason we're even reviewing one of the reasons we're reviewing this is that we reviewed Godfather one and two as part of movie house memories, which is where we think we talk about the, what we think are the greatest films of all time. Um, and Matt couldn't be here tonight because we talked about, Hey, we should review the third one as a goof on lunchtime movie review. And that's why we took over lunchtime movie review for this week, uh, just so that we can complete the saga and Matt couldn't be here. And we appreciate Shane filling in like the George Hamilton, as we just, I described in the intro, but <laughs> Um, the Aussie George Hamilton. Exactly. Uh, but this is, by general audience, this is seen as such a huge step down from the first two films. But do you guys really think it's that bad of a story? Or is it is it still up there? It's just 
it has much more flaws than the first two films. Shane? No, I think it's a great story. It's fleshed out. It involves characters, as we discussed, uh, a little bit differently than what we've seen before. And uh, I, I know it's an extension, and it probably didn't exactly need to happen. You know, this didn't need to happen to finalize the the story because the first two films you could have left it at that but no i i really enjoyed enjoyed the story it's very involving and i hadn't seen it for such a long time got certain aspects of it so i was completely entranced uh yeah i i really do think the screenwriting had its moments and it doesn't compare to the original two as i don't know oscar oscar worthy but it's still a great film it was. It's only okay to me. I think it's definitely a different type of story than the first two. I wouldn't even. I almost don't even consider this to be any sort of action film, and light on mobster. I think this is more a man in his twilight years. I think Francis Ford Coppola has said that this is more of an epilogue than a, a the third film, and that is what it feels like to me. So it, it's not quite as interesting to me as the other two. And I do think it has a lot more flaws, so I don't think it it um, captures my imagination the way the other two did. I liked it. it. It wasn't my favorite in the series, but I did like it. And I would agree that it is more of an epilogue. And, and I liked the closure that um, watching his death brought. And, and I thought it was an interesting choice to make his death so similar to his father's, that he had lived this violent life and had so many attempts upon his life and then he dies peacefully at his villa so i i, I liked it and i do think it brought closure all right well i hate that sequence <laughs> i really hate that kind of just that little coda at the end of him just collapsing in the chair or collapsing out of the chair and dying is that i thought that was so unnecessary that that you know i almost feel like it was probably Al Pacino saying, I'll come back for one more, but uh, you have to kill me. And that was the way they killed him. And it just was such, not that I needed him to add necessarily a violent death, death, but after you have such a huge death scene, huge emotional moment is to have that little sequence, which just seemed weird and out of place to me. I don't, I don't have an idea how I would have ended it. I just didn't like that aspect of it. And it just, I, I, I agree with the symmetry that, between his character and Marlon Brando's character, how they die as basically old age rather than through the violence that they've perpetuated throughout their lives. Um, but I just didn't like that little sequence of it. But I, I, as a whole, I think this is actually a pretty good film. It just, it's, it's just got the one glaring flaw of, well, it's got lots of flaws, but the glaring flaw of Sofia Coppola that I think it was the lightning rod for why this film is bad. I do think it's a little long. I think there was some things that could have come out of it, but I think the story is pretty interesting. And I think it, it's, it still is, is uh, uh, up there with, as far as like good films, especially of that year. Uh, it, it's nowhere near Godfather one and two, which are both very close to perfect films, but it is not the, it, it, it wasn't as bad as, I think a lot of people give it credit for and, con and considering once again, this was nominated for seven Academy Awards. I mean, this was a well-nominated film in a year that, you know, we reviewed Dance with Wolves and um, Goodfellas on Movie House Memories, two films that I put in my top 100 that I think are 
absolutely great film. So it was up against some stiff competition that year. And I also think Awakenings, which also was nominated for Best Picture, is not in my top 100, but was an outstanding film with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams, I think is an, an, an underappreciated gem of a drama <laughs> that was released that year. So, Patrick, you hated that final scene I where he, he falls off the chair and the long shot. But what about if they just held on his eyes, the camera held on his eyes, and then it faded to black and left it at that? Would you have been happy? I would have been happier with that ending, although I think it would have been a weird place to end the film without something else, something else to show. I mean, obviously, you're showing a suffering at the moment, but what the end scene does show is that he left that life that he was a broken man and he died uh, essentially what looked like leading a pauper's life in Sicily, which, you know, what probably wasn't a pauper's life, but that he was no longer the man of power that he had been throughout his life. And I think that was necessary to kind of wrap it up. But I, I just didn't like the, ah, uh, he died and fell out of a chair. You know, it just didn't seem, it just seemed kind of like you take a huge jump there and I didn't like how they ended that. It just bothered me. Um, and and for years, they talked about possibly doing a Godfather 4 without, um, with not Al Pacino, uh, Andy Garcia. And I was actually probably more excited about that prospect of it, although I don't know if Francis Ford Coppola would have been behind it, but I know Paramount had thought about it because they thought there was still viability in the Godfather franchise. I wouldn't put it past Paramount or any movie studio if they wanted to buy the rights to do another one because it's all it is these days, prequels, remakes, sequels, and reboots. Chris's favorite things in this world. They call it nostalgia movie making these days. All right. Well, one thing uh, the previous two Godfather films didn't have was a absolutely incredibly sexy Bridget Fonda walking around in nothing but a leather jacket. That caught my eye. That, no, that, that, that did too. It also caught my eye the fact that Bridget Fonda is in it for about five minutes and is one of the major build stars, which, once again, it was like, why did you need to get Bridget Fonda other than you wanted a Fonda in your film? And it, it just seemed... I, I like Bridget Fonda. I really liked Bridget Fonda back then, but it was like, that's it. That's all she is. I mean, she's literally the floozy girl that for a couple scenes. Maybe like she was doing uh, Francis a favor, or I have a feeling that maybe her character was actually a lot longer or bigger, but just didn't, didn't eventuate because they could have done something with her character. It was a reporter. She wanted to interview uh, Michael. So, that you know, things like that could have been stretched out a bit, but maybe that's why she wasn't in it as much. Uh, and her, I mean, she's a pretty good actress. Maybe they could have considered, well, she's a bit older, to swap roles uh, and play Mary instead of Sophia, and Sophia could have played the uh, role of the reporter. All right, let's wrap it up. Uh, did we see it this at the time? Do we think it stands the test? Uh, what do we think of it then? Did we? Uh, does it stand the test of time? Chris? I didn't see this in the theater. I saw it on VHS. And um, I didn't care for Sofia Coppola's performance then. I don't care for it now. Um, like I said, I, I've never, I've always wanted Tom Hagen in this one. So, But uh, having said that, it's pretty much the same movie that I saw back then. So I'm going to say that this does stand the test of time, flaws and all. I agree. It definitely stands the test of time. All right. Did you see it back then? You saw it sometime, like in the 90s. 
Yeah, but not when it first came out. It was it was a while before I saw it. I think I, think I watched it with you. So I think I watched the entire series with you. Right, I think so. Yeah, and I actually enjoy viewing the Godfather saga that way when it's in chronological order. Yeah, the the Godfather epic collection I had on VHS, still have on VHS, sitting on my shelf. So. Yeah, that's my favorite way to watch. Even though it's long, that's my favorite way to watch the series. Shane, I did not see this uh, in the theater on release, and funnily enough, uh, Godfather Part Three was not the first. Uh, was the first installment I saw. I did not see the original two before I saw Godfather Three. I don't know how. I think it was on VHS at like mate's place or something, and it just happened to be on. And I watched it. So that would have been the first time that I'd seen it, not in chronological order, but I have since done such the right, watched it more the right way. To me, it does stand the test of time because uh, it's not quite a fatal blow by casting Sophia Coppola. Like we've already said, people just refer to as, you know, the worst role ever. And I just don't think that's the case. And I enjoy the story and it has a few minor flaws, but it's still, um, Stands the test of time, definitely, for me. Shane, which do you like better, one or two? One. I love two, but I just think the Marlon Brando side of things in one did it for me. And they're they're almost perfect movies, both of them, like Patrick has already said. So I can't really nominate one or the other, but if I had to, it would be number one. Um, I saw this in the theaters. In fact, I looked forward to this with great anticipation because I had already seen Godfathers 1 and 2 a few years before. And when I saw the trailer for this in the summer of 1990, I was very excited to come to see Godfather 3. I was like, oh, great. They're making another Godfather in, you know, in my in my heyday, you know, rather than when I was two years old. So where I did not see Godfather Part 2. So I I really looked forward to it. I have to say I was I, I went with a group of people, including Carol, as Lori had said. I know she went with me to the theater with some other people at the time, and we were all universally disappointed due to Sofia Coppola's uh, acting ability. And I have to say that I think that was such a distraction for us that it took away from the plot because I I think the film I thought more negatively about the film back then than I do now. And Sofia Coppola's acting is horrible and does cause me to cringe. But after watching the film multiple times over the years, I, I think that it's still a really good film, just incredibly flawed with one glaring flaw. But it still doesn't take away from kind of the epic feel of the film. And it, it, it's a worthy a sequel to the, the Godfather series, not not up there with where one and two are as far as their their legendary status in cinema history but definitely better than the average film that came out in the time in the time and worthy of the, even just the name of godfather and i'm glad that they've never revisited and gone back um, although at the time i pro- i wanted them to go back to make something better than godfather 3 and continue on with andy garcia i think that this ultimately was a good place to end it and just end it with uh the michael corleone character and not have it go any further than that I missed a major opportunity of seeing when this came out. I remember the cinemas were showing a double feature of Godfather and Godfather Part Two. 
uh, a few like special screenings before uh, The Godfather Part Three came out, and I never went. That's something I I actually regret. At, at least Francis Ford Coppola's winding it back to Winona Ryder did get to work with uh, her again in Bram Stoker's Dracula a couple of years later. Yes, once again, another Keanu Reeves film that he asked backwards goes into that I don't even know if that one's even that good, but it has a lot of good acting performances in it, kind of a, a cheesy story. So, Well, that's it for today's Nostalgic Review. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section on our website and rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If there is an 80s film you'd like us to review, please send us an email at comments at moviehousememories.com with your name, your pick, and your location. And finally, if you are of the social media persuasion, you can look the MHM Podcast Network up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you do, please give us a follow when you find us. On behalf of the whole gang here at Lunchtime Movie Review, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, we have to get out of here and you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada at SerpentineSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. 